This podcast episode is brought to you by Derm Health Co., Australia's only skin health platform with over 700 qualified practitioners, treatment providers, and support groups. Derm Health Co. exists to provide education, community, and treatment options to support the health of skin following trauma, disease, or injury. We serve the patient, the carer, and the practitioner through unique solutions tailored to every single step of the skin health journey, from discovery and first diagnosis to treatment options, community support networks, through to providing a source of referrals for practitioners. Visit us at www.dermhealth.co. Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Rodriguez, dermatologist at Chroma Dermatology. Dr. Michelle Rodriguez is the founder and director of Chroma Dermatology, which is Australia's first dedicated center for pigment problems and skin of color. She's on the Council of the Asian Society for Pigment Cell Research, the Global Vitiligo Foundation, and the Vitiligo Association of Australia. She is a senior lecturer at Melbourne University and is a senior consultant at the Royal Children's Hospital. She's authored numerous textbook chapters and medical journal articles on pigmentary disorders, skin of colour dermatology and cultural competence in healthcare. She is passionate about education, research and outreach in these specific areas. Dr. Rodriguez shares how her journey into dermatology inspired her to open a practice that is dedicated to skin of colour And we talk about some of the most common skin conditions that are present in those with skin in color, but also pigmentation disorders and the importance of correct diagnosis. Hint, something that looks like melasma is not always melasma. So important um, to get the correct diagnosis to prevent loss of time, money and you don't want to create more angst for the patient either. I started by asking Dr. Rodriguez what she thought was the biggest misconception about pigmentation disorders. The biggest misconception is that all pigmentary disorders are cosmetic. And, you know, that is true for some pigment problems such as freckles, moles, sun damage and melasma, which is a common condition that causes brown spots on the face. But it's not true for, say, vitiligo, which is a pigmentary disorder in which uh, pigment cells are destroyed and where white spots develop. This is an autoimmune condition, just like type 1 diabetes, just like celiac disease. And so understanding that there is a broad range of pigment problems problems, not all of them are cosmetic, is probably the biggest misconception. Yes, absolutely. And we are going to delve a bit deeper into that today. But firstly, tell us about your career into dermatology. 
So I commenced uh, dermatology training straight after our resident year. So during medical school, we are actually asked to rotate through various specialties. And in my third year of medical school, I did rotate through dermatology outpatient clinic. And it was only really then that I realized that, uh, you know, dermatology existed and that it was something that I really, really enjoyed. And so I pursued that a little bit further during the latter parts of my medical school and then was fortunate enough to do training in and around Melbourne. The training program is about four years and of that time I spent various periods of time in different tertiary referral hospitals around Melbourne and also six months in Singapore. And I guess it was during that time in Singapore in 2008 where I really realised the magnitude of pigmentary disorder problems, the problems that it created for the patients that suffered with them, and the fact that in Australia, I thought we were falling behind in terms of our diagnostic capabilities and therapeutic options that we were offering to patients. So dermatology was one of those few specialties that allows you to treat both adults and children. There's a variety of surgical procedures that one would do as a dermatologist as well as medical consulting. And as you well know, there's the opportunity to be involved in patient advocacy, education, research, and even outreach work, which is something that we do at Chromodermatology. Fantastic. And you then went on, finished your studies and opened Chromodermatology. So when did you decide to open a centre that was dedicated to pigment conditions and skin of colour? Well, I think, as I said, in 2008, during my time in Singapore, I really realised that, you know, we as a nation were probably lagging behind in terms of our knowledge and skill um, in the sphere of pigment disorders and how to manage patients with non-Caucasian skin types, which includes patients with Chinese skin, Indian skin, Hispanic skin, African skin, you know, basically skin types that are non-Caucasian in biology and in function. And it was during that time that I thought, I'm just, there is a dire need to provide some level of increased knowledge and dispersion of information within Australia. And I think that, as I said, the training program is a four-year period. And after that, I probably spent the next five to six years really learning from amazing and incredible mentors abroad. So particularly in the US, in both New York and Texas, but also across Asia and Europe in centres that subspecialise in in pigment disorders. So this was a, a long process. It's still an ongoing process, but I was fortunate enough to be able to learn from these amazing leaders in the field. And over that time, while I was learning all of this stuff between 2008 and sort of 2015, it ended up being both during my training and then after, I really recognised that I thought there needed to be a centre that was purely dedicated to pigment problems and skin of colour because it is such a challenging and difficult area and one that didn't exist. So I actually practised for nearly a decade before as a, as a consultant dermatologist before opening chromodermatology specifically, but it was something that I knew in my heart and my head had to be done for the sake of providing that level of care to, to patients in the community. What a fabulous journey. And just the fact that Australia is so multicultural, but we don't see dedicated practices that are really representing those with either pigment conditions or skins of colour. Mm-hmm. So are you able to just give us a little bit more information about how does the treatment of pigmentation disorders change for those with skin of colour? 
Well, I guess the first and most important thing to say is that patients with skin of colour, as I said, includes a broad range of patients, Chinese, Indian, Hispanic, African, Middle Eastern. And we know that the structure and the function of skin in this group of patients is entirely different. And we therefore understand now that there are very unique skin, hair and nail problems that occur in this patient population. Separate to that, there are common conditions like acne and eczema and psoriasis, of course, that we see in across all patients, many different age groups and many different ethnic groups, but it can look different to the naked eye. And the third important factor is the treatments that are helpful for some patient groups are not necessarily helpful in others. So if I delve a little bit further, um, we could use um, acne as an example, or we could use melasma as an example. And I think in the context of doing pigment problems, we can talk about melasma. In patients that have Caucasian skin, the melasma is readily seen, and we can quite quickly determine if it's in the top or second layer of the skin. In patients with skin of colour, that can be a lot more difficult, and we can sometimes require the assistance of a woods lamp, which is a tool that enables us to see a little bit more clearly the difference between affected and unaffected skin in patients that have darker skin types. So that's how it looks different. In terms of how it behaves differently, we know that patients with skin of colour actually react to not just ultraviolet light A and ultraviolet light B, as we've all been taught for Caucasian skin, but also patients with melasma who have skin of colour may react to visible light. So this means light that's coming through from distant windows, from um, mobile phones, from computer screens, all these sorts of things can actually impact patients with skin of colour, particularly patients that have skin phototype four, five and six, which is sort of um, more your subcontinent Asian through to African skin types. So that's an example of how diagnosis differs, um, how etiology or different, different factors in the environment can affect different skin colours. And then I'll say therapeutically for melasma, for example, it might be appropriate to tell a patient with Caucasian skin that they could utilise makeup or cosmetic camouflage to cover a darker area. They might be slightly more bronzed as a result of that, but they often don't mind. Patients with skin of colour, of course, can find it very difficult to cover melasma because they're almost making their skin five or six shades darker than their natural skin colour. And another example would be the use of retinoids. So retinoids are a, a vitamin A-derived product commonly used to treat melasma. I find it's absolutely fantastic for most patients that have Caucasian skin, but in those that have particularly Chinese and Indian skin, it can be extremely irritating and cause lots of redness and irritation, dryness, and then rashes. So that's one very simple example of literally hundreds of how the diagnosis, the therapeutic options, and and even the biology of the skin can differ in these skin conditions in different cultural groups. That's really interesting. So since opening, have you been surprised at the response from the community? I have actually. Yeah. <laughs> I've been pleasantly surprised, completely overwhelmed, really honoured to think that patients and the community at large feel that this is a necessary endeavour. I think that we've had also a great response, I must say, from other colleagues, so general practitioners, allied health staff, 
and even other dermatologists who are interested in referring patients with skin of colour for diagnosis and management or referring patients with pigmentary disorders to us as a second opinion or tertiary referral centre. So I must say I'm extremely pleased and humbled to be in that situation where we are providing what's an obvious unmet need. That's so fantastic. And I think for anyone in any industry, they might have a special interest in something, but there's a difference Correct. between having a special interest and then I guess being specialists in a certain area. And I think we're seeing a shift in all types of businesses where people aren't just going to a general type practice or a general type provider. They are seeking out someone that perhaps specializes in their specific concern because it means that essentially what you're working on and what you're treating all day long rather than just every now and then. I must say you're spot on. And in fact, in thinking about it retrospectively, that was not really the intent. It was purely a frustration, a lack of knowledge and education. And I desired nothing more than to try and empower other clinicians and patients with knowledge and stuff that I had learned from centres abroad. And then realised, of course, that it was something that was welcomed with, with open arms for the community. And I think, you know, there are other dermatologists who subspecialise as well. So there are some that specialise in, for example, hair loss, others that specialise in a certain type of surgery for skin cancers and I guess for me and for us at chromodermatology this is this is a real passion it's a real labor of love it's a challenging area but it's one that's proving to be for the most part extremely rewarding on many levels mm, and I can imagine patients travel further to see you because if they have a pigmentation disorder it would make sense for them to go see the dermatology clinic that specializes in pigmentation yeah, I've been surprised by that too. So we've had, of course, you know, local patients who could quite literally walk to the premises. Yep. But, you know, we've had many coming from far and wide across different parts of metropolitan Melbourne. We're in the southeast, but we've had patients from everywhere from the north and west through to interstate, west coast, east coast, Tasmania. And I think being able to work with providers that are closer to their home, providing the diagnosis and management plan and then working with their local you know, dermatologists or practitioners has been also a very, I think, helpful thing for them mm, that's um, fantastic. In, in their pursuit of subspecialist care. Yeah. And just for listeners to clarify, Dr. Rodriguez and chromodermatology is in southeast Melbourne or southeast Victoria, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. We're in, in uh, Wheelers Hill, which is in the southeast of Melbourne. Yeah. So in your opinion, how often are pigmentation disorders misdiagnosed, mismanaged? Why do you think this happens? Do you see it a lot? Oh, look, it's such a good question. And I couldn't really put a percentage on it or a number on it. But what I can say is let's take hyperpigmentation because people can have troubles with excessive amounts of pigment or decreased amounts of pigment or absence of pigment. But let's just take excessive amounts of pigment as an example. So one of the most common causes of excessive amounts of pigmentation or brown spots on the face is, of course, melasma. And as a tertiary referral centre or a subspecialist centre, we see a number of patients who've seen non-medical clinics, aesthetic providers, general practitioners, and even dermatologists who've struggled to manage pigment problems. And the main issue, as I see it, is diagnosis. So obtaining the correct diagnosis is absolutely critical to optimising outcomes 
and minimising the risks to patients. And by minimising the risk to patients, I mean everything from managing patient expectation and out-of-pocket costs for treatments, right through to seeing objectively and subjectively responses to treatment that are obvious to the naked eye. So I would say that happens far more than we realise. It's probably underreported. We see, as I said, a significant proportion of patients who come in with a diagnosis of melasma, for example, but there are literally 40 other causes of hyperpigmentation on the face that it could be and sometimes is. So how do you work as a provider or practitioner to actually determine or come to that diagnosis? It's multiple faults. So the first thing, of course, is taking a really detailed history of when the pigment started, where associated symptoms, family history, other medical problems that may play into this pigment problem. Then, of course, a detailed examination, which involves looking with the naked eye, utilising special equipment, everything from a woods lamp, microscopic evaluation, dermoscopic evaluation, sometimes through to a skin biopsy in order to confirm exactly what type of cells are present and where they are present in the skin. And then, of course, sometimes extra blood tests might be necessary. And again, it depends on the type of pigment problem that we're looking at. So if we were to take vitiligo as an example, vitiligo is an autoimmune condition causing destruction of the pigment cells in the top layer of the skin. As a result of that destruction, people are left with, of course, white spots on the skin. And given this is autoimmune, it is associated with other autoimmune conditions. So the first step, of course, is making the diagnosis. Usually that's clinical. Occasionally a biopsy is needed, but I find that's more often needed to reassure the patient who has sometimes seen multiple practitioners and provided with different diagnoses from fungal infection through to yeast infection through to eczema. So it can sometimes provide reassurance for them that this is in fact the diagnosis. And then in terms of further investigation, because of the autoimmune nature of vitiligo, I'll often order, for example, a thyroid function test because 15% of patients with vitiligo have autoimmune thyroid disease that they don't know about. So it really is, I can't say there's a cookie cutter approach. It really depends on the presentation of the patient and then, of course, the particular problem they have as to whether or not further investigations are helpful or necessary, in fact. Yes. And just in regards to melasma, I hear mm -hmm. melasma be used as a bit of a blanket diagnosis all across the internet when someone says that they have pigmentation on their face. What are perhaps maybe two or three other conditions that can present similarly to melasma that as an untrained eye might not recognise? Sure. That's, Marnie, a, a really good question. I would say the most common would be post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, which results from sometimes something as simple as irritation from a cosmetic cream or makeup that can cause redness, itch, etc., and then turns into a brown spot afterwards or smudgy brown areas. Probably the second most commonly missed diagnosis would be a combination of melasma plus freckles or acquired dermal pigmentation. So this is a whole host of other acquired conditions, things that occur after birth. So they're not birthmarks per se, but they can look very much like melasma. They can occur in the same area. They can appear as very similarly coloured, but in fact, examination and even a biopsy can help determine exactly where the pigment is sitting and, and differentiate the two. 
Yeah. And I think it's really just important to stress that, that one, pigmentation disorders can look very different in skin of color, but two, depending on what the actual diagnosis would be, there would be a completely different treatment program. So it is really important just bringing back home how important it is for someone to have the correct diagnosis to begin with. Oh, you're spot on. Something like freckles, for example, very easily, effectively and safely treated with laser. And of course, as we know, the laser choice, the settings, et cetera, would differ very much in a patient who has skin phototype one or two versus a patient who has skin phototype four, five, six. But the same kind of pigmentation can be seen, but could be a result of melasma, for example, on which a laser is used and can potentially make it 10 times worse and irreversibly so, particularly mm. if the long, wrong laser is, is utilised. So yes, as you pointed out, extremely important to make that diagnosis accurately so that we're not worsening the problem. Now, Dr. Rodriguez, I'd love to just perhaps talk about some of the most common pigment disorders that you see in your practice, maybe like the top two, and then dive in a little bit deeper and discuss etiology, some of the treatments that you do, and then the risks and success rates of the treatment programs that you offer for those types of conditions. Sure. So the first one is definitely melasma. And for a long time, melasma has been labelled as a disorder of pregnancy or cloasma or hormonal pigment. But there's so much more to melasma. It's very much multifactorial and related to exposure to ultraviolet light A, ultraviolet light B, visible light in those with skin of colour, as mentioned earlier in our discussion. It's also related to ex heat exposure. And we know that occupational heat exposure is critical in the etiology of melasma. We also know that certain medications and hormonal states can potentially make things worse, but we also know that this occurs in patients who are male, patients who've never had estrogen. So these are some etiological factors associated with melasma. In terms of treatment, there's a variety of treatments that are available and each of these needs to be assessed in terms of advantages and disadvantages based on a patient's age, the location of the melasma, the length of duration of melasma and what treatments they've had prior and any underlying medical issues. And of course, with pigmentary disorders, we also have to define what the expectations are for, for the individual patient, where they want to get their pigment to and what lengths they are willing to go to try to achieve this. So of course, there's over-the-counter preparations, things like hydroquinone in a 2% formula that can be bought over-the-counter without a script that can definitely help patients who have very mild melasma but then of course there are mixed combination creams or hydroquinone alone that's in the order of two percent or more that will require a prescription from a doctor or dermatologist there are physical therapies available to assist melasma in the form of chemical peels and energy-based devices like laser but i would reserve those sorts of laser energy-based treatments for those who are treatment resistant and of course there's systemic treatment now available for melasma i've been using for about eight years that's successful in certain subtypes of melasma and in certain patient cohorts in terms of risks or issues with melasma, I think the most important thing to tell patients is melasma is a chronic and recurrent condition. So anyone that tells you that they can remove this completely with 
this lotion or potion or X amount of laser treatments probably doesn't really understand the nature of melasma and how it eventuates. And I think it's important to tell the patients that yes, they may have success, but what is success for the patient? Does success mean complete clearance in the long term without recurrence? Or does it actually mean that we are lightening things to a point where it's not going to be visible to others on a social level? So that's melasma, I guess, in a deeper sense. In terms of uh, the second most common pigment problem that we see at chromodermatology, it would definitely be vitiligo. And as mentioned before, this is an autoimmune disease in which patients have a genetic susceptibility to more fragile pigment cells or melanocytes. So as a result of their genetic susceptibility, there are certain environmental triggers and that can be everything from emotional stress triggers through to physical trauma, burns, occupational exposures that can unveil this susceptibility of the weak pigment cells to be attacked by sections of the immune system. And when these pigment cells are attacked, there are patches of white skin that develop and they effectively cause white spots with white hair, sometimes in affected areas. The great thing and the great revolution at this point in time is our understanding that this is autoimmune. It's not just cosmetic. It can absolutely be treated, but the key to treatment is treating early, ideally within the first 12 months, maybe even the first 24 months, but getting the right treatment and the right combination of treatment for that person's type of vitiligo. There are two main types of vitiligo, segmental vitiligo and general vitiligo. Segmental vitiligo being the far less common form of vitiligo. So only about 2% of patients have segmental vitiligo in which a small patch of skin only is ever involved. And of course, general vitiligo in which spots can develop literally in different parts of the body every day. This is easier to manage in terms of its medical therapy, but it needs to be instituted early. And the most common combination of treatments would involve either topical steroid creams or topical what we call calcineurin and inhibitors so things that try to stop the immune system cells from attacking the pigment cells in the skin and we generally combine that with light therapy ultraviolet light b or phototherapy which can stimulate the pigment cells and encourage them to reproduce and repigment areas that have become white i would say that the success of the treatment depends on a the duration of the vitiligo itself be the location of vitiligo so areas involving fingers toes areas that don't contain hair generally don't respond as well as hairy areas like arms legs abdomen and face and usually if treatment is ceased abruptly then there's about a 40 percent chance that the the white spots will come back pretty quickly so it's important to think about maintenance therapy for most patients Mm, how interesting. And we have spoken about vitiligo in past episodes. We actually had Erica from Living Dappled on who is an advocate for those with vitiligo in the US. Wonderful. And she has a very rare form of vitiligo where she actually has lost 100% of her pigment. 
And she was saying that, I think, is it statistics for those with vitiligo is 1% of the population, but I think she represents 1% of the vitiligo community just based on the extent of her loss of pigment. But it's so wonderful to hear that I don't believe these types of therapies were available to her when she was a young child, when she was first diagnosed, but it's so fantastic to hear about these new types of things that are coming out. Absolutely. Yeah. So you were talking before, Dr. Rodriguez, about sometimes doing further testing for patients, and sometimes this is for their ease of mind. But when assessing a pigmentation disorder, at what point do you require further investigation to perhaps test for comorbidities as opposed to uh, just the patient's peace of mind that it is the correct diagnosis? I would say most of the time it would really depend on the situation. So Things like melasma, lentigo or lentigenes, which are commonly known as freckles, through to things like vitiligo are very much a clinical diagnosis for the experienced clinician and the experienced dermatologist. There are other conditions, however, that contain pigment deep in the second layer of the skin and a biopsy is almost essential to figure out which particular type of dermal pigment problem we're dealing with. So, Marnie, it really depends on the diagnosis. And as I said, there's about 49 different causes of hyperpigmentation and each of these could quite literally be a podcast in and of themselves. But needless to say, for the two most common things that present to the clinical, let's say the top three, melasma, vitiligo, and post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, a biopsy would generally not be needed. And out of all of those three, uh, blood tests would generally only be required in patients that have vitiligo. Having said that, there are other types of pigment problems, particularly in patients with skin of colour, that can occur as a result of other underlying autoimmune conditions like lupus or dermatomyositis, which can sometimes present with pigmentation on the face or back or chest or hands. So it really is a mixed bag. And the most important thing really is to, as I said, hopefully get the right diagnosis and then work through from there. And what do you think has perhaps been some one of or a few of the biggest breakthroughs in the treatment of pigmentation conditions, either in recent years or at least throughout your career? I would say, you know, when I commenced dermatology about 15 years ago, we really only had basic creams effectively available for melasma. One of the biggest breakthroughs, I think, is the advent of systemic therapy in the form of tranexamic acid. This is a really interesting molecule. It's been available via our gynecology colleagues for excessive menstrual bleeding. And our Japanese colleagues actually found this to be helpful accidentally in patients with certain types of melasma in certain situations. Just before sort of 2010, probably around 2008, if I'm not mistaken. But it was only published in English in 2011. So this is when it became known in the English-speaking world. But because of the journals they were published in, mainly around Asia. In 2013, I was discussing on one of my many adventures overseas to gain more insights into pigmentary disorders. I was talking with a trusted colleague about this particular um, tranexamic acid tablet. 
And I decided at that point, after further investigation and looking at the literature, that I too was going to try this treatment in the appropriate patient group. And from 2013, I started doing that. And I finally reported on it to dermatology colleagues in Australia in 2014 local conference. And understandably, it was met with a lot of anxiety because this tablet could theoretically cause blood clots in the arteries and in the veins. It can also potentially cause issues with tummy upset and dizziness and back pain and and period issues. Mm. So there was a lot of anxiety and worry about the tablet, but I could see that in a certain patient population, it was working extremely well, better than other things that I had seen. And again, the patient population and selection is critical. And what I decided to do at that point is collaborate with a colleague of mine in the US. I tapped him on the shoulder when I was over there working in Texas and said, look, this medication looks really promising, but we really need to do well-structured studies. So we decided to embark on a randomized double-blinded placebo control trial. It was meant to be multi-centre, meaning between the US and Australia, but for funding reasons, the American arm went ahead before our arm in Australia. But I'm still involved with the American arm and I'm very pleased to report that the results mirrored the clinical experience, which was a really good 50-ish percent improvement in difficult to treat melasma in certain patient in certain women. And the results of our trial, which was meant to be combined, as I, as I mentioned, will be available soon and also mirrors similar results in a heterogeneous population. Because of course, in Australia, we have the benefit of all sorts of nationalities being treated at, at our clinic. And we certainly did see an overall excellent response, particularly those who had really severe treatment resistant melasma that was sitting in the second layer of the skin. Late last year, the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, which is a very highly reputable journal, uh, called tranexamic acid one of the breakthrough treatments of dermatology for the decade. So I think that really illustrates that it's not just myself or something local or someone local that believes this is really a breakthrough, but really I think people have accepted this as a breakthrough on a, on a global scale. Mm. In terms of breakthrough for vitiligo, it's definitely the advent of biologic therapy in the form of JAK inhibitors. And these treatments are currently in trial mode in different parts of the world, including Melbourne. And the JAK inhibitors, I'm sure, will revolutionise the treatment of vitiligo and will open up the doors to newer treatments in the biological space and more pharmaceutical companies hopefully coming to the party, realising the psychological and social impact that these sorts of conditions can have and the improvements that these particular medications can make. Mm, Fantastic. And congratulations on your research efforts. I mean, it just shows how important it is to sometimes follow a hunch if you're seeing something subjectively and you think, hang on, there's something going on here to further explore that. So I'm sure that along with your research you mentioned that there's been others that have also said that it's a breakthrough but without people like you saying there is actually something here then it wouldn't have actually been researched at the beginning yeah look i think you know we've got our asian colleagues to thank for that they're the ones that really innovated in this space the the colleagues in southeast asia but the key to globalizing knowledge is really how do we bring this across from example 
for example, from Asia to Australia and then across to the, to the US. So it wouldn't have been possible without our Asian colleagues. They're the ones who really brought this to the fore. And I think the collaboration, international collaboration, has really elevated the profile of this particular treatment as a possible uh, you know, solution for, for otherwise very difficult to treat melasma, which of course we know affects patients' quality of life and self-esteem and confidence and potentially even marital prospects and job opportunities pending, you know, that kind of society and culture they're living in. Mm. And in terms of, we often hear people say the world's getting smaller because everything is so much more within our reach. How is this, has this space changed in the dermatology arena as far as sharing information and doing research and working collaboratively? Oh, look, you know, going back even 10 years ago, research was very difficult to do if you weren't physically in the same space as your collaborators. But we're now able to collaborate with people from, and chromodermatology is doing this right now as we speak, and we've done it for, I have done it personally for the last maybe eight, nine years, where we can actually reach out to people in the US, the Netherlands, India, right through to Australia and communicate almost simultaneously in a way to bring research findings, knowledge and medical papers together. We can also distribute the information far more easily and effectively, of course, through things like traditional medical journals, but also through social media platforms, which has enabled distribution of information on a scale that we'd never imagined possible. So I think the acquisition of knowledge, the ability to collaborate and the ability for us to disperse this is far greater than it was even you know, 10 years ago. Mm, how fantastic. And I think we'll just see that speeding up even more as we get better with technology and we get new types of AI working with us as well. Correct. What do you think are some things that may be lacking in terms of understanding and also modalities for certain pigmentation disorders? Look, there's so much more that we need to learn about pigment and problems in patients with skin of colour. A lot of funding and resources and time and energy is spent for good reason on things like melanoma, which is, of course, another end of the pigment disorder spectrum. But there are certain pigment disorders that are very debilitating that still don't attract the kind of funding and attention that they really deserve and need. An example of this up until now was vitiligo. Another example would be melasma. There are a number of other conditions, lichen planus pigmentosis, erythema dyschromicum persitans, are just some of the many, many pigmentary disorders that I think require further funding in order to have a greater understanding of their etiology and treatment options that are available. In Australia, that's quite tough. Um, You know, I think the challenges are the structure, the infrastructure that we have, and the fact that hospitals are not necessarily tied to universities as they are in the US. So obtaining funding for studies is much easier in the US, for example, than it is here in Australia. But nevertheless, we keep pushing on and we keep trying to innovate in the best way that we can, because at the end of the day, Australia does have a very rich, culturally rich and diverse community that will allow us to obtain results in clinical trials that are relevant across various patient populations. So I think for me, the biggest challenge is in the space of research into pigment disorders and skin of colour, because without the research, we're not going to get a greater understanding of the etiology of conditions and we're not going to be able to innovate in terms of therapeutics. 
Mm, really good point. And also that just made me start thinking about research is so important to be able to understand the diagnosis and the modalities that would be most suitable, but also research is so important to understand like the psychosocial impact of a pigmentation disorder, because we know some of them might be cosmetic in nature where they don't have other comorbidities, but they can have such a great impact on the, you know, the psychological health of the patient. And I'm not sure, but I don't think a lot of these types of treatments are actually covered by other Medicare or by health insurance type things because they're seen as cosmetic. Is that correct in the space of that is, education? Yeah, look, that is absolutely the case, Marnie. And that's the difficulty. We do have a lot of research that shows that pigmentary disorders of varying nature have a significant impact on quality of life. They can impact a patient's ability to actually get to work, seek work, be married and be productive in society. So it does actually have economic impact, if you will. At the end of the day, if we're able to provide therapeutic options that enable patients to integrate back into the community, back into society, back into the workforce, entering into relationships as per their desire, etc. We can surely um, positively impact the communities that we're serving. So you're absolutely correct. There is some research to show that there is quality of life impact. What we now need is to be able to advocate strongly with government and other stakeholders like Medicare, for example, in order to provide rebates on this medication because for many conditions the only treatment options that are really rebatable are things like topical steroids or phototherapy i must say in australia we're in a, in a very privileged position so patients with vitiligo they may actually be able to obtain topical steroids and phototherapy with Medicare rebates. In the US, this is not the case. In certain parts of Europe, this is not the case. People would need private health insurance to be able to access these treatments. So we are in a privileged position, relatively speaking, but as you say, there's a long way to go for us to be able to advocate for our patients and have stakeholders understand that subsidising treatment will positively impact communities and our productivity, employability, and general well-being of the community. And it sounds like it all comes back to data. So if there can be more research and more funding into research, then perhaps that can be shown and advocated for. 100%. And in the space of pigment disorders and skin of colour, it's something that still is not well understood. We're doing all we can and the space is certainly much more positive than it was even 10 years ago. But, you know, we continue to advocate for... for research grants for more education and greater understanding in this area of dermatology in particular and i'd like to ask a bit of a two-sided question now just for the two different sides of our audience so we have some of our listeners who may be a patient maybe someone with a pigmentation disorder or another skin condition if someone is seeking a treatment for a pigmentation disorder what would some advice that you would give to them and then the other side of that question or the second question i guess is for either practitioners or clinicians that are working with perhaps a patient or client that has a higher Fitzpatrick type, so a darker skin, and if they're presenting, what advice would you give to them? So I would say to patients and the community, if you do have skin of colour, higher Fitzpatrick skin type, it's probably really important to make sure that the diagnosis that you have is the correct one. Because if you do, you're more likely to be able to obtain 
information on what the possible treatment options are and will minimise risks associated with those treatments. I find that that's probably the biggest issue. Now, how does one find that? That's a really difficult thing to say, but I can say that dermatologists really are at the peak of their knowledge in terms of skin, hair and nail related issues in the community. So to obtain a diagnosis from a specialist, I think is critical. And in particular, if you can find someone near to where you are that subspecializes in pigment, that just gives you an extra level of confidence and capability in terms of providing the right treatment. For clinicians, I think it's really interesting because we often are confronted with multiple treatment options that are marketed as being safe for all skin types. And I'm sure you've seen this as well, Nani, whether it's creams or peels, chemical peels, device treatments and lasers. And oftentimes there are written instructions. Step one, use this setting. Step two, use that setting. But what I can say to clinicians is it's very, very important not just to blindly follow settings that are listed on manufacturing information of a device or a product. It's really important to see if you can go back to the basics and have a read of some literature on skin of colour, on textbooks that particularly pertain to skin of colour or at least journal articles that provide some insights. And if you're not sure, then reach out to a colleague who might be able to help. I get emails on a weekly basis from colleagues locally as well as interstate saying, Michelle, you know, how would you approach this or am I thinking about this in the correct way? What are your thoughts? And most of the time, I'm sure local dermatologists would be more than happy to assist other healthcare providers with information if they can and certainly second opinions if it's if it's necessary in person so i think collaborating reaching out to the to the others in your community and if of course you're in the community then reaching out to people that you know and trust have the knowledge and skill to be able to maximize outcomes and minimize risks I absolutely love that. I'm so about a collaborative approach. So I think that's fantastic advice. So where can people find more about you and the work that you're doing? So as I said, I, I'm at Chroma Dermatology. It's, it's our dedicated centre for pigment and skin of colour and it's the heart of all we do. The best way to find out some more information is just to head to our website, chromaderm.com com.au to find out more information on our services and, and what we do. And it, it spans from clinical services, education and research right through to, to outreach work. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on today's show, Dr. Rodriguez. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Marnie. Wonderful to chat to you too. What a fabulous interview. I actually first heard Dr. Michelle Rodriguez speak at a conference about four years ago, and she was covering the use of lasers to treat pigmentation disorders. And since that time, I've been wanting to interview her. As you can probably hear why, she's a fantastic speaker, and she's also able to talk about complex subjects in a really simple and concise way. There was so much gold in that episode, but the three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were, number one, presentations of pigmentation disorders are very different to those with skin of color. And to top that off, 
there are dozens of variations of hyperpigmentation, which is darkening of the skin pigment. In order to get the best outcome, it is really important that the condition is diagnosed correctly from the very beginning. This can save a lot of time, money, and angst for the patient or whoever is going through the treatment. Number two, the concept of a niche is so relevant when seeking a provider to support the health of your skin, especially when we're talking about specific skin conditions. And we are seeing that in so many different businesses now in all kinds of arenas where we're seeing niching down or more boutique type services than just more a jack of all trade. And while I believe there are many people out there that are amply qualified and experienced in several arenas, I really believe that if you have a specific concern, it is great to seek the services of an expert in that particular area, especially for that initial diagnosis. Number three, I loved hearing Dr. Rodriguez speak about a collaborative approach. It made my heart sing. It's such an important aspect of care to work collaboratively to get the best results, but for treatments, but also in research. And I just loved hearing her speak about that because it's what Derm Health Co. is built on. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. It helps more than you can imagine, and it's the secret source to help more people find this podcast. Every good review helps with the podcast algorithms so that when someone is seeking a podcast or an episode on a specific subject, the more reviews a show has, it's going to come up higher in the search bar. And we would just love to share the message with more people about the Heal Thy Skin podcast and the Derm Health Co. platform. I look forward to bringing you another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast next week. Until then, stay skin powered.